In this edition of Emergence, we'll be talking to doctors Tiziana Lembo and Divine Equem about FMD in Africa and the impact on communities. Welcome to the second season of the Emergence podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alistair King. This year, we've got a number of interesting chats already lined up. We'll be focusing on things such as medicine supplies in Africa, the role of paraprofessionals, and learnings from recent avian influenza outbreaks, amongst many other topics. In this edition, I'm going to share the full unedited version of the conversation with Dr. Tiziana Lembo and Divine Equem from the University of Glasgow, where we talk about their experiences with foot and mouth disease in Tanzania. You may already have heard some of this discussion in a previous episode. However, I believe there's a lot we can learn from them and the full recording. Here it is. Hello, Tiziana Devine. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about FMD and what you're seeing in Tanzania. I really enjoy talking to people who are doing things on the ground and experiencing what's happening and understanding the local situations because we can't just apply what we know from Europe to to Africa. We have to understand what is going on in individual situations and individual countries, not even just a, a continent of Africa. We need to understand the individual places. So I really appreciate you joining. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I've been working or in contact with you, Tiziana, certainly for, I think it's now probably seven years. I've just been trying to work it out since we first met over in the Netherlands to talk about your project. And you got me so interested in all this that you're doing. I think first, just can you explain a little bit about your background, Tiziana, and how you got to working in foot and mouth disease? Yeah, so I'm a veterinary scientist and I developed an interest in international animal health quite a long time ago, I did a master's on this topic, so um, that was really what drove me to, to this type of topics. And I'm particularly interested in uh, infectious disease problems that affect uh, impoverished communities in sub-Saharan Africa, both in terms of their health, but also their livelihoods as a result of impacts on the health of their animals and their productivity. And so I, I worked on a number of infectious diseases over the years, and uh, I guess they all suffer from the same type of issues. These are problems that the communities feel very strongly about, they complain about, they say that they cause a lot of losses in terms, terms of their income. Uh, but very often, you don't actually have the data to really show that these problems are, are real. And, and the impacts that people see on the ground really uh, make it very, very hardly into official records. Uh, and so that means that the, the disease problem is not prioritized and, and there aren't sufficient efforts in terms of managing it. And foot and mouth disease um, is an interesting one because when I started thinking about FMD in Africa, I thought, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an incredibly prevalent problem uh, in other parts of, of the world and it is uh, a very important issue uh, considered really prominent globally uh, but when you think about endemic food and mouth disease at least at that time uh, there wasn't um, there wasn't 
really much information about what the communities were experiencing, experiencing and the impact that they were seeing. Um, so um, it really felt that there was a need to start looking at these problems on, on the ground in more, in more detail and trying to quantify this impact so that we could really demonstrate that it was uh, as big of a problem as, it, as the communities were telling us uh, it was. Um, another reason, I guess, why I thought it was uh, a good study system to start thinking about in Africa is that we have the opportunity to work in an environment where uh, we have wildlife and livestock populations coexisting. And uh, again, at that time, there wasn't a very good understanding of the epidemiology of the disease and uh, what the contribution of uh, wildlife was in terms of the disease in uh, in livestock. Most of the inferences we, can, we could make at that point were based on the Southern African experience, which is quite unique because uh, there is a physical separation between populations and also the disease is heavily controlled in cattle. So what we see in the field is uh, uh, is an, an artifact of all these interventions. Whereas in Tanzania, we were in an environment where there is no physical separation separation because animals kind of share the same environment, both buffalo and, uh, and the cattle, and also no controlling cattle. So we could really start tackling these problems in, uh, in, in the real world, in a, in a completely natural system and try to understand what, what was going on. So those really are the two main reasons, trying to address the lack of data on the impacts at the community level and also have the opportunity to really look at the epidemiology in, a, in an environment that was so uh, conducive to that type of research. Thanks, Tiziana. And Divine, how about you? What brought you into the foot and mouth field? Yeah, <clears throat> I'm also a vet by training as well. And um, I did my veterinary education in Nigeria um, that was several years ago. And um, I think I really became quite interested in um, transboundary disease, you know, as a whole. And um, I remember we have this professor that also did his PhD in Glasgow, and then he was telling us about the movement of livestock and how that really drives disease across the West African nations. And I quite become very interested in it because when you see the, the nomadic movement, you know, from the Sahel nations, like the way um, the trade is driving it, big countries like Nigeria, for example, with massive population is pulling a lot of livestock all the way from Mali um you know Burkina Faso down to Nigeria and that's spreading a lot of diseases so that really becomes quite an interesting aspect for me so um when I came to Glasgow then and had opportunity for you know a PhD that actually you know going to investigate livestock movement in the context of FMD transmission in East Africa so I was really really happy like my god this is exactly what I've always wanted to do and I've been presented with a golden opportunity to actually you know research something I really have an interest in so that really, really, um, you know, works very well for me. And then it has also continued because in my postdoctoral um, research as well, I'm actually looking at transboundary movement between Kenya and, um, and Tanzania, the interface areas, and also looking how not just FMD now, but we're also trying to link up with Antrax as well to see how those movement across those boundaries, which are very difficult to actually measure, but how they really relate to disease transmission. So it's just an opportunity for me to really mix my interest and my work, which is really very good. Thanks, Divine. It's interesting hearing the different different motivations that got, have got you both to to this place where you're working together on this. The overall project you're doing, and it's now has been going for quite a few years. Say, I think six or seven that I've been I've been engaged with it. 
you've got a number of objectives. You're trying to understand the connections between the different villages and how they use their resources. You're looking about how the herds actually then interact as well and using different things like GPS collaring, which I think is really interesting. You're trying to understand the trade associated movements. And that to me is a really essential area because it's people's livelihoods and we can't interfere with that, but we need to understand how it's moving the transmission of disease. And then from that, you're trying to improve surveillance and work out how to do your intervention strategies. You've come up with some really interesting things. But the first question to think about is what is the actual impact of have you seen of FMD, foot and mouth disease in Tanzania? What does it mean to the local communities? Overall, on the continent, we know that the losses are major. Uh, we have recent estimates that tell us that losses are uh, amounting to about $2.5 billion, which is huge. And, and the vast majority of the losses are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but those are some kind of generic numbers that tell, tell you a little bit about what the impact is, but not really what happens at the household level. And that's really where we see the vast majority of the, of the losses. So these are communities that depend entirely on livestock for their livelihoods. About 70% of uh, households in, uh, in Tanzania, and that's consistent across sub-Saharan Africa, have livestock. And they are what we call like livelihood oriented, uh, households. So they keep livestock for subsistence as opposed to commercial reasons. Livestock um, are used for all sorts of reasons. They produce food, uh, milk, meat, blood in some areas that is consumed fat is very important too. But they're also your current and saving account in a way because if you need some cash to pay for your children's fees, you will sell a cow to get the money that you need to pay for those fees, or if you need to send your child to the hospital or a family member to the hospital, again, you have to find immediate cash to pay for transport and to pay for the hospital fees and so on. Uh, and that's when you, again, you sell an animal to get that cash. But you also keep a lot of animals um, as, a, as, a, as a saving um, process when, when you do need the the money. Animals are used for draft reasons in areas where agricultural activities are also very predominant and they are used for all sorts of products like hides. Hides are extremely important. Hides are used to build houses but also to make utensils and so on. So it, it's uh, it's really um, deep reliance on uh, on livestock for all sorts of reasons. And uh, when a disease like foot and mouth disease gets into a herd, what the farmers report are, are major losses in terms of meat production. Um, in these areas, meat is consumed very rarely. It's, it's more the exception rather than the rule. Uh, it's normally uh, associated to major events. Uh, but what uh, the use as daily source of protein is really milk. And when, and when FMD gets into a herd, they see pretty much no milk produced. So we're talking about animals that are really not very, you know, produ productive. They produce about five liters a day in, in, in good circumstances. So when FMD is into a herd, that, that uh, amount drops to one liter or even no milk whatsoever. And the farmers tell us that they, they stop milking, they stop selling the milk 
we see a reduction which is quite substantial it's about 67 percent of uh, of of uh, milk yield that uh, declines we also see that uh, they see reductions in in actual cash from livestock sales and that's also quite substantial it's about 27 percent which amounts to just over 230 dollars which is enormous we're talking about communities that live still on less than two dollars a day so uh, if in a household they see an outbreak that's 230 dollars sometimes they report up to three outbreaks a year which amounts to 700 dollars that's really half your annual income uh, due to a disease like foot and mouth disease and um, and they do see many many cases every every year. They they feel that it's a problem that they cannot address because uh, it's uh, very persistent and its preventative measures are, are limited at least the ones that they can they can implement. So it's a reason for major major concern. And the the issues are really around productivity that declines. And of course they can't use their animals for uh, for draft reasons uh, because they can't uh, they can't walk um, and they lose condition because of the disease when we talk about transboundary diseases in general a lot of the meetings we go to it's it's about the big impacts and you you quoted the numbers of, of loss when you look at a country level and there's no question these diseases keep some countries trapped in in poverty and unable to get to the next step but it is really important to remember that individual impact that you're just talking about. These animals are people's lives and a disease like foot and mouth on top of everything else is devastating, as you say. And when you're keeping your cow for potentially for that rainy day money that you might need and you lose it, that's, that's key. That also has an impact on surveillance as well, doesn't it? Because some places I know, and I'd be interested, do you see this in Tanzania as well? People don't like reporting that they've got this disease because they're worried that someone's going to come and take their cows away or, you know, compulsory slaughter. Do you see that kind of impact happening? Yeah, well, uh, there isn't such a policy like likely in this in these areas, but there is definitely a perception that um, if your animal has or your herd has foot and mouth disease, uh, uh, you you might not be able to um, to access resource areas or or take the animal to to the market uh, because because you know, people will not buy it, uh, if it's a if it's a sick animal. Uh, so it's not in some parts of Africa there are major restrictions when FMD is in an area. Everything stops, so um, people lose livelihood completely. But uh, in Tanzania, there is still less regulation of these processes, which is probably not an ideal situation either, because uh, because then people keep moving their um, animals to to markets when they, when they shouldn't. Uh, but uh, um, but it, it definitely uh, affects them more on a daily basis and in terms of kind of generic policies that the government might impose on, on, on people in terms of restrictions. Thanks. I think that leads us into this inter-village connectivity that you've been looking at and how, the, how they use the resources. Divine, what have you been, what have you learned in your, in your interactions with them on how that connectivity between the villages is working? In, in normally in East Africa, you know, um, livestock are actually being kept in, in a traditional system. And what that means is they share, uh, you know, communal resource areas. 
And when they do that, there is always widespread mixing of livestock population. But this movement is really critical, right? Because it, livestock survival actually depends on them. But with this movement, then there's that risk of disease transmission. However, over the past four years, what we have done is to be able to understand this movement so that we can actually use it to explain how the disease is actually spreading, and which, of course, we inform our control strategy. But what exactly is this intervillage connectivity? So when I started, you know, uh, working in these communities, of course, as someone coming from Africa, I have seen how livestock are actually being moved locally. But I never really understood how those villages are actually connecting to each other. It's a kind of like a network, which is quite impressive, which is what we've been able to, you know, to articulate properly. Now, look at a, a, a household, right? A household which in East Africa they call a boma in Kishwahili is that enclosure where you have livestock. And in an agro-pastoral setting, you've got about maybe 150 livestock because they keep mixed, you know, species, the sheep, goat, all mixed together in one household in most cases. And in the pastoral community, you have an average of about 500, you know, animals in a particular boma or a household. Now, they combine these animals to graze. They mix them together. For example, two, three households can come together. It will save time if one person would just gather maybe up to 1,000 animals and then move them on that day. That's their own turn. Then I can do it maybe the next day. So within a village, basically everyone is mixing so quickly with, with every other one. And then at the end of the day, a village is almost like one large head mixing together intensively. So you can consider that village as a unit, right? And in agro-pastoral community, you've got up to five to 10,000 cattle in that one village. While in the pastoral communities, you've got up to 20,000. Now imagine a scenario where every single village with that amount of livestock, they are moving every day continuously. So that's a very complex network web, just like a spider web of livestock moving, right? Now, a village does not always have those resources enough to sustain their livestock because it's not always possible for you to have a good grazing area as well as a good water source. So in as much as you might have enough grazing area, you might need water in the next village. That means you have to move your livestock to those villages. And when that happens, then that inter-village connectivity occurs. However, I was asking the pastoral communities and I was like, why do you guys always enjoy this movement? You know, is it like just as your livelihood because you move from six o'clock in the morning and then up to six o'clock in the evening, that's when you come back. And then the pastoral guy said, no, you're getting this all wrong. Where exactly are you from? I thought you're African. I said, of course I am African. <laughs> then you shouldn't be asking me such questions. I said, but I need to understand. You might say, guys, you keep moving all day long. You know, he said, no, we do not enjoy this movement. We don't want to move. Why should I have to move 20 kilometers every single day? That if we have water and we have pasture for our livestock, we are never going to move. I was like, okay, that's interesting. So you're telling me that if government should provide or whoever should provide these resources for you, you're not likely to move. He said, exactly. And you will not have been here because you will be researching our inter-village connections because we don't go anywhere. And that means we don't transmit disease as well. So I kind of find that very interesting, actually. But however, another thing I was able to realize is that talking to the pastoral communities and then talking to the agro-pastoral ones, there's a fundamental difference with the movement. Of course, in the textbook, it's always, you know, explained clearly that the agro-pastoral move shorter distances compared to the pastoral, they transhumanes, they move from one area to another, then they come back. 
But what we've been able to realize is there's a structural difference, right, that also relates to how the disease is actually spreading. For example, in the pastoral communities, a village is connected to almost 20 other villages at every point in time. Why? That is three times more compared to the agro-pastoralist. And also the distances of villages that are connected. You can see that the village that is up to 25 kilometers is likely to be connected with each other in the pastoral communities. Why in the agro-pastoral communities, you have within about five kilometers of villages that will be connected to each other. So that difference in their connectivity as well will not give you an idea on the scale and then the intensity of how those connections is happening. Because in the pastoral communities, where we measure the connectivity, that's the frequency they are connecting with each other, it's also almost three times higher compared to the agro-pastoral. But something else which we find which was quite you know, surprising is that in the pastoral communities, there's actually high movement, high connectivity in the wet compared to the dry. Why the reverse was the case in the agro-pastoral community? Because you expect that there is more resources you know, available to livestock with increase you know, in precipitation level. But that's true. However, in the, and that should, of course, result to less movement. But that wasn't the case in the pastoral system. And we're linking that maybe it's also possible because of competition with the wildlife, especially, you know, wider bees migration, especially in the area we're studying. They try to avoid them as much as possible in the wet season, which might have resulted them, you know, walking longer distances and there are more villages being connected to each other. You know, so those are the kinds of patterns we've been able to observe in these communities. Those numbers are quite scary. 20 villages connected together and a distance of 25 kilometres. When you look at trying to control a disease like foot and mouth disease, that's a lot of nodes to be trying to keep on top of once the disease starts. It's going to move very quickly. So how do you see the the trade movements impacting this spread of FMD? Yeah, so in, in the trade, is 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 a complete different scenario. You know, basically... Livestock movement, especially to trade, right, it also drive FMD spread because the animals actually follow, you know, the, the virus actually follow the animal as they move. But what we've been able to understand that in, in East Africa, Tanzania, for example, and other East African nations, you know, the, the, the effect of trade is very unique. It's quite different. For example, look at local trade. These animals, as I've described just earlier, they are mixing every single day in these grazing areas, water point, up to 25 kilometers in the pastoral system. And what that means basically is, you know, within that radius, if you are trading with anyone within there, it's not going to make any difference because you've already mixed at those resource areas anyway. So the effect on trade, you know, in East Africa is likely to be more on the regional side of things. That means one district, you know, transmitting disease to another district. That means you trade your livestock within, um, say, for example, we were working in the Maya region, which is the region that is close to the border between in northern Tanzania and southern Kenya. And what we also understand is a kind of pattern in that movement. There's a directionality to it. So what we realize is that livestock actually originate from the rural areas, and then they get traded in the rural markets, and then they move to the urban area. So there is that directionality of rural to urban movement through the trade network now. And what we now realize is that if that's the case, then most probably those villages are actually the source of an infection, for example, FMD, and then the destination where they are moving in the urban areas are now becoming the sinks of infection. Now, the danger is now, for example, if, okay, we see very less movement between the urban and the rural area. However, there are instances where you will see an individual that will go to a market in a distant area, buy an animal there, and bring him back to introduce into his local village. 
And that is a very, very risky behavior because you're already constraining those urban areas at the hotspots, you know, that the things where the viruses actually are. So purchasing any animals from there, introducing to your head becomes very risky. And that's what we've been trying to do to, you know, to really educate farmers, especially about quarantining and animals that you're buying from a distant market, because that's really, really important. If you can allow the period of, you know, um, the incubation period of more than 40 days of FMD, for example, to elapse, then that really helps you to make sure that the animals you're buying from a very risky area for a big market is not introducing disease into your own local head. And that's continuing with the local spread as well. But then one something which you also understood what was quite interesting is the cross-border movement. Because we're actually interested, since we're already working at those regional areas that are bordering, you know, between two countries, can we try to estimate how much animal is actually moving between Kenya and Tanzania. That was really, really uh, complicated and, and difficult because what we realized in our movement data is we, we had about 67,000 livestock that were traded in 2017 in the Mara region in northern Tanzania. Now, 60% of that number indicated a small regional town as their destination. That regional town is just bordering the border with Tanzania and Kenya. There is no spatial economic you know, um, you know, advantage of that particular area to be attracting such much amount of animal. So when we now had these interviews as part of the study, of course, with the middlemen livestock traders that are really making the profit in selling animal, they said, well, what is going on is we are not really actually moving to that town. It's only um, a strategy, you know, to, to, to just get animals close to the border. Because when you tell the government, for example, because when you buy an animal, there's a permit that is being issued to it. If you tell the, the, the person issuing the permit, the government official to say, I'm taking my animal to Kenya. He said, okay, sorry, guy, you need to go and buy the premium rate now. You can't use this local permit to move your animal to Kenya. So I'm just going to tell him I'm just moving to the border town just in Tanzania, not going to Kenya. So we now realize that is what is really going on. And that becomes very, very difficult. And that has been the challenge you know, in, in most of these countries to really estimate how much animals is crossing the border. And that will now allow you to actually estimate how much risks of disease is associated with those movements as well. So for the, the cross-border ones are really difficult, you know, to, to, to estimate. I think there was a study that was done several years ago that actually estimated that 90% of movement within East African countries are actually not recorded. That is only 10% that goes through the formal channel. So, yeah. you know, that becomes quite difficult to assess the impact of trade at that level. It's quite scary when you kind of think of things like that. When we think of foot and mouth disease, we think about the virus, you know, when, when that comes up as a topic, that's we're thinking about the, the disease, how it affects the cattle. And what you're talking about, though, is really highlighting the impact of people in how this disease spreads. That is so, so much what drives it and how it's moving around. When I first learned about this project, a big part of why I got excited, why I was interested, was because you, you Tiziana, you were talking about the community and you wanted to get to that local level to to understand what was happening at that community level. How important have you found it to engage the community over the years? Have you found that engaging at a local level has made a difference? Yes, yeah, so there are so many reasons why it's so critical to engage with the communities in, for the type of research that we do, but also if we want that the research that we do has an impact on the livelihoods of these people. Um, one key reason is that uh, we really need 
the knowledge that these people have, uh, they have a very in-depth understanding of the animals, of the diseases that they have, of their environment, uh, in terms of what um, areas might pose risks um, of any type. So they they know their animals individually. They don't need any sophisticated system to identify their animals. They can tell you which animal is which. They they can tell you how a healthy animal looks or how a diseased animal uh, looks. What I find very interesting is that when they talk about health uh, and what they consider the the um, aspects of health. Uh, in their animal that uh, they want to see. They talk about almost like a social dimension. <laughs> they, they talk about the ability of the animal to to eat and drink and, and be part of the herd as opposed to isolating itself. Uh, they talk about uh, the ability that they have to produce and reproduce and work uh, in terms of, for example, providing draft uh, capacity, uh, but they also recognize very clearly biomedical dimension of health, so they can recognize what typical clinical signs uh, indicate a certain disease problem. And so we're talking about diseases that, are, that, that don't make it into official records. So if we don't um, uh, rely on the communities to, to detect those cases, then we have no cases, basically. So we completely rely on, uh, on their understanding of their animals and, uh, and uh, on the disease incidences that they see in their area so that we can actually quantify quantify um, their impacts, but we uh, we also need this information to be able to interpret and contextualize our, our results and also determine what constraints people might have and so what um, recommendations that we might want to provide uh, they might be able to, to implement. So that's that's a key reason, so really to to be able to, to tap into this incredible knowledge. Uh, but it's also that we often need to collect quite sensitive, sensitive data. So anything to do with livestock movement uh, is uh, is sensitive information because very often, because of the constraints and barriers that they have, they need to use um, um, trajectories uh, or paths of movements that are not uh, um, are not legal. Uh, that are what we would say informal. Um, so if you don't establish that um, very deep relationship with the communities and uh, a level of trust that enable them to talk to you about what they do and why they do it, then we would never be able to collect information um, at that level. And then I would say there is a, 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 a final reason why it's critical, and that's to do with the fact that very often uh, what happens at the community level never makes it to higher levels. So in 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 fora where something can be done about it, uh, the communities often complain to us that they don't have access to higher level stakeholders to talk to them about their uh, their issues and the barriers that they have in terms of disease management. Uh, so, so as researchers, because we work at both interfaces, we we work both with the communities but also with government offices. We can we can really enable that that dialogue, and we we uh, we can act as a link between what happens on the ground and uh, and offices where something can be done about it. On the other hand, we also hear from the government uh, level that they really appreciate 
hearing directly from the communities. There is often a disconnect between what happens in these offices and what happens in the field. And they, um, so they, they lose perception uh, of what the key issues are and what they should prioritize. Uh, so uh, we had that opportunity uh, working at that level to really create a link between these, uh, these processes and and ensure that our research does does result in some in some change on the ground. I know. I remember you did quite a few workshops, didn't you? Which were bringing the villagers, the elders of the village, the the local veterinary services, and the governments together in the same place to, for a couple of days. I think wasn't it? How did how successful were those? What did you learn from those? Yeah, they were really really. Um, exciting uh, for for two reasons, I guess. One is because uh, so we we go into these communities, we do a lot of research, and we're talking about years and years of us um, going in collecting data, and very often that data get barred into a publication and never makes it back to the communities. So um, these workshops are an amazing opportunity for us to to feedback the results to them. It's it's almost like a feedback loop. We go into the community, we benefit from their knowledge, and then you want to ensure that that knowledge gets translated into something that is uh, useful to them. And also that they they really get an understanding as to how we use the data, uh, the data that, that, that we collect and how, how, yeah, how they can use that data to maybe improve uh, improve management. And it's also an amazing opportunity for us to address some possible knowledge gaps or misperceptions that might affect their ability to engage with certain recommendations. There are a few examples of, of that. One, one uh, was at the beginning when we started working in the area, they really didn't feel they could do anything about foot and mouth disease because, because of the role of buffalo in transmission to cattle. So they felt that because they were living in areas where there are a lot of buffalo, that meant that they couldn't do anything about about it. Uh, And so even just that explanation of the fact that we think that the problem is is mainly within the livestock population as opposed to coming from wildlife and that there are some things that they can do that are more within their control in terms of reducing uh, the incidence uh, was a bit of a revelation. Another another important area that we addressed in some of these workshops was to do with uh, uh, the misperception that vaccination doesn't work. Uh, and that's because they have experience with vaccination. They've used vaccines of limited quality in the past, uh, and that has really affected their their trust in uh, in uh, in the vaccines, but also they didn't really realize that there are different viruses, different serotypes, and they, they are basically dealing with with four di- different diseases. And that if they don't use the right vaccine for the right serotype, that that intervention has no no impact. Um, so there are many things that basically we've been able to. Uh, feedback into the communities um, this way. And then there is uh, the element of bringing in people from the government into this uh, uh, arena so that we can enable that dialogue and, and people from the government can really appreciate what what issues people have and, and why, why, why it's an issue for them uh, not to move their animals, for example, to control uh, an outbreak and, and why 
these movements are so critical to their livelihoods. So rather than just going and saying, you have to vaccinate against this disease, we have to control it, getting that community side, getting them to helping educate them so they understand what the impact is, that's leading to a better overall engagement and activity actually happening. Yeah, that, that that's right, and uh, and it's also um, it's also an opportunity for us to really brainstorm potential solutions together. Uh, there are a lot of constraints still. We've certainly made a lot of progress, but there are still a lot of issues around the control of this disease in in rural Africa. Uh, so having an opportunity to talk to them about about how we can use the information that we have and how we can try and address the barriers that they have um, in a in a collegial way is uh, is extremely valuable to us and and to them. Some issues are systemic and uh, quite fundamental, but uh, but it's often quite extraordinary how many resources these these people have. Divine, just with that work that you've been doing and your engagement at that local level seeing how those nodes are, the disease traveling. In what kind of ways has this brought to you novel ways or novel ideas of how we could approach foot and mouth disease? Right. Yeah. So basically, you know, um, when you talk about foot and mouth disease control, you know, there are two things that really needs to happen at the same time. And that is restriction of movement and having an effective vaccine. Now, that's the best case scenario, right? But that's not, a you know, available to, to these local communities we are working in in East Africa. And that's why our study over the years have now started thinking about ways where we can actually incorporate these challenges, you know, in providing solutions and recommendations towards the control of FMD. So, for example, what our network models have been able to show is that, you know, in the web I described earlier on how these villages are mixing or how the trade network is all connected, there are actually few locations that control the majority of the movement. So if that's what is really happening, that means if we should focus on intervention, for example, on those key areas that are influencing the movement, then we can actually reduce transmission and impact, but with very little, very little cost. For instance, there are studies that have been able to you know, demonstrate that when you target 20% of highly connected nodes in a network, you can actually reduce overall connectivity or a size of an epidemic by up to 80%. So we actually demonstrated that in our own data. So what we did is to simulate disease on those networks which we've been able to establish in the northern um, part of Tanzania, and then see, for example, how our network information can actually be used to control the disease. So when we simulated disease, for example, we simulated FMD, then we targeted 5% of the highly connected market. And what we realized is that when we restrict movement to those areas, for example, we were able to reduce an FMD epidemic by 93%. So in that way, we can be able to focus intervention more strategically and save costs and time. But also, we also try to understand what about the local aspect as well. Can we also use that information to actually improve the control of the disease? Um, in a publication which um, Tiziana and others had, you know, um, I think that was in 2018, where they were describing the wave of FMD, you know, happening in these communities. For example, you could see serotype O causing an outbreak and then serotype A coming in the next wave. And we're also able to predict the next serotype that is likely to cause an outbreak. 
So if that's, that's the case, which is very good, but what our movement data have now been able to do is to actually inform the timing of an intervention. So if, for example, you are going to, you are going to predict that the next serotype that will cause an outbreak in an agroposterial community, for example, is going to be O, and then you have a good vaccine that will be able to prevent the outbreak, for example, then the timing is also important. Because when we simulated disease in those communities in the pastoral and the agro-pastoral, we realized that in the agro-pastoral, there is actually high cases happening in the dry season compared to the wet. So that means a targeted control option should be able to, to be timed in such a way that just before the dry season in the agro-pastoral community, that's where a proactive vaccination campaign should be done. Why in the agro-pastoral community is exactly the opposite. You should be thinking about doing a proactive vaccination just at the beginning of the rainy season to make sure they have been protected, especially if you can also predict the serotype that is likely to cause an outbreak. So combining those two you know, information could really be a step forward in controlling FMD in this area. That fits really well with some work, some modeling work we did quite a few years ago. I did present it at one of the FMD conferences where... We were looking at, I was looking at modeling the impact of using low quality vaccines rather than high quality vaccines. Because one of the reasons we know that people buy low quality vaccines is they're cheaper. So you could get 100% vaccination if you use a low quality one because you can buy loads as opposed to not getting as much with a high quality one. And our modeling actually showed if you look at how well high quality or low quality control the disease, it showed you're going to get a quicker control of the disease by using a high quality vaccine, but vaccinating a, a lower proportion of the of, of the population than managing to do all of the population, but with a low quality vaccine because of the way it cuts down on spread and everything like that. But that was just a general modeling. Now, if you take that now and put that in with what you're talking about, which is targeted vaccination because we know where the real real problem areas are, that's really quite impactful because that stops us having to think about just blindly vaccinating every single cow, but we can control and focus where our spend is. Exactly. That just allowed us to balance that cost you know, and, and effectiveness, which is really very good. Yeah, I wasn't really aware about that, but, you know, that really explained it exactly. So with this information we now have, if you go to a community, for example, in northern Tanzania, and you have this information in terms of, you know, characteristics of those areas that are highly connected areas. And then, yes, having that high-quality vaccine, which is expensive, but you need to vaccinate fewer areas, fewer households, fewer communities, then, you know, you can't start thinking about, achieving the control of FND might become possible eventually. <laughs> so that's yeah, yeah quite of a... Uh, I think it's also it. interesting that you talk about the individual uh, serotypes as well, because you know, one of the challenges for Africa has been finding effective SAT vaccines, the South African Territory viruses. Those vaccines struggle a little bit more than the traditional O's and A's. But actually, if you start breaking it down into let's control O, let's control A, well, you may still be getting some outbreaks of SATs, but at least you're controlling the the more aggressive parts of the disease rather than trying to control it all as one disease all at the same time. And we could just nibble away at bits and get gradual improvement. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah, that should also be a very good strategy because you know the, the, the predicting of the next serotype that is likely to happen really makes that possible. And, um, you know, having a way on how you're also going to do the strategy, you know, combining all those information, I think we are really getting, you know, some, we're making progress definitely with that. Yeah. I think the last thing to just 
ask because I know we're running out of time. What do you see with what you've learned? What do you see as the major hurdles to that still remain to FMD control? So we've talked about vaccines a lot, and we do know that there are some existing high-potency vaccine strains that work against the serotypes that we see in Tanzania. But uh, I, I would think that one of the major constraints still is uh, is uh, mechanisms to get those vaccines into into the countries that need them and also from the country level into the communities that are mostly affected and and that's still a, a bit of an issue in some of these areas it's very exciting that there are now initiatives in place like the agrizals initiative that are really tailored to uh, to lead to the de- development of good vaccines but also um uh, facilitate the registration of these vaccines at the local level and improve uptake. So that's 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 a very good initiative. It'll take time. Um, so at, at this at this level, we are still working towards getting those good vaccines into the communities. And then we talked about a monovalent vaccination approach. Uh, that is something that we could propose, uh, but that needs to come hand in hand with the ability to diagnose outbreaks by certain serotypes as they occur. And that's also still a little bit of a challenge, but there has been a lot of progress in terms of technology to be able to uh, detect serotypes on the ground. And so we are we're working with some of the developers to try and validate some of these uh, devices uh, in, in the field and see how well they work. I guess the final issue to consider is costs. There is quite a bit of a push at the moment to to persuade the farmers to contribute to some of these prevention processes. And, uh, and so we're trying to evaluate how feasible that would be and how willing people might be to contribute. The data we have are quite promising. But the community say that they would be willing to contribute only if we could reassure them that the vaccine that they would be using is a good one, because previous experiences uh, lead them to to think that they need to be cautious how they use their money. But the data we have are certainly quite quite promising. They indicate that they would be willing to contribute to a vaccine, particularly if it's used for reactive reasons as opposed to proactive and that's something that we need to discuss with them uh, because uh, I I feel that sometimes uh, the failures that they see in terms of the vaccinations that they've tried in the past might be to do with the timing of uh, uh, of delivery they might be intervening too late when when the outbreak is already in the herd and so there is nothing that can be done so thinking about mechanisms by which we could we could by diagnosing an outbreak in an area we could protect areas that still haven't been affected is, is something that we need to discuss with them. And there is also quite some interest in a potential diagnostic approach at the community level by which people contribute to some sort of community fund to be able to d- diagnose the outbreak that's affecting that village at that particular time and then use that information to protect neighboring villages. So we are moving in the right direction. There is still some work to be done, but a lot of progress has been done in other in other areas. Some of those challenges are specific to FMD, and some of those sound much more. If we improve the overall animal health infrastructure, 
that's going to lead to some of those improvements. It's going to be easier to get good quality vaccines in. If we improve the overall health of these animals, A, vaccines are going to work better because if the animals don't have loads of other challenges with parasites and everything, then their immune systems are going to be better. But also by improving the the overall health, we're going to see better gains out of those animals. And you talked about the low milk yield that's happening just anyway. It's not just foot and mouth disease that we need to worry about. If we want to get these animals really functioning well, we've got to have a holistic approach to to everything that's going on to so that the villagers see see a real step forward from where they are. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And uh, these communities don't tend to focus on just one disease. They actually, they often say, you know, you come to us and ask us all sorts of information about this particular disease, but actually we have to deal with many more aspects. So what we want is just that our animals are healthy so that they can produce uh, independently of what kind of disease problem problem is. Obviously, there is a need to prioritize also that at that level, because uh, they, can't, they can't invest all of their income into one disease, so they have to decide which one is the one that leads to the greatest losses. And Divine, are there on your side any additional hurdles to to FMD control that you're seeing? Well, yeah, I think something as which um, I realize in you know, dealing with these communities in uh, you know at that very local level is that they've they've kind of find a way to live with FMD right over the years. So they've accepted that there's always going to be these laws and there is nothing that can be done about it. So I think like you know, for example, like what Tiziana was saying about you know they're contributing towards the control of the disease by maybe being able to pay some certain amount towards the vaccine if an effective one is available. But the truth is, most of the time, they are not even interested in buying anything. To them, they believe that animals are just free to roam, you know, they graze freely, then whatever we get from them is the additional benefit. So I think that value orientation, just to try to let them know that there is, in as much as, you know, you recognize there is an impact of FMD on your head, but you could actually save more if you could invest this little towards a vaccine. So getting that education across is is something we really need to do. Great. So education definitely one of the keys to keeping on keeping on improving where we are. Yeah. Thank you both very much. We've overrun our time. I've just really enjoyed talking to you about all of this. Really appreciate the time that you've given to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for organizing. Yeah, thanks very much. At the end of last year, the EU FMD held their open session as a virtual conference. We were really excited to see what they would do, because this meeting has regularly been a really key one to advancing foot and mouth control. I was actually asked to present on vaccine prioritisation, an area I find fascinating, thinking about the lack of resources or not having enough resources that we can't vaccinate every animal we would want to. So how do we focus and prioritise what we do have available? Do we look at the areas where disease is most likely to be occurring? Do we look at the nodes where we can see disease is spreading? Do we look at certain types of animals? Do we look at certain communities? There are a whole different load of different ways we can look at prioritisation. I think it's really important that we do so. We also had a virtual booth there. This was an exciting adventure for us. We've not had a virtual booth before. Having that and seeing how we could use that to bring information to the conference, I hope some of you were able to visit it. But we had displays of 
our website, we had our podcast, we had other online information we're trying to bring, we talked about surveillance, we had a whole heap of things which really emphasize how we are trying to work with technology and use technology to partner with you for the future. I'll put a link to the presentations from the EU FMD meeting in the podcast notes for this episode. Thank you for joining me. Stay safe. I'll speak to you again soon.